0: Welcome to the New Testament Review.
1: Where, every episode, we discuss an influential piece of New Testament scholarship.
0: Except today, where we're going to cover an article that no doubt will be influential on the field of New Testament (laughs) studies, an article written by our very own Dr. Laura Robinson.
1: (laughs) Hi, I am Laura Robinson.
0: And I'm Ian Mills. (laughs) And I'm so excited to talk about your piece today, Laura. Thank you. So today we're discussing hidden transcripts, the supposedly self-censoring Paul, and Rome as surveillance state in modern Pauline scholarship. This was published in 2021 in New Testament Studies by Laura Robinson.
1: Ian, what is this article about?
0: (laughs) Well, in this piece, Laura is arguing (laughs) that there is no good reason to think that Paul would have to self censor, that Paul would have to downplay his own anti imperial beliefs and teachings. Scholars who argue that Paul really is secretly super anti-imperial, but can't say so, that they're, well, wrong.
1: The scope of this article is pretty small. Yep. Not with the larger question of, like, how did Christians in Rome get along? Why were Christians persecuted? You know, there's a lot of other conversations that touch on this that have been part of Christoph Heilig's larger work since then, In um, other interlocutors. There's a lot of stuff we can say about the question of Paul and Empire, this article itself actually has a pretty limited scope, and that was really deliberate on my part. Is um, What I really specifically wanted to get after was this claim that Paul has anti-imperial sentiments. He has anti-Roman sentiments in the text of his letters, but they are hidden. They are under the surface. They're only available for an insider to hear because of the danger that speaking openly against the empire would create for himself personally or for his movement. So my question in response to this was, what are the contexts in which Paul's speech would be subject to surveillance? And if it was subject to surveillance, what kind of speech would a inhabitant of the Roman Empire need to be cautious of regarding his speech about the empire?
0: And I think the focus of this argument is really one of its strengths. We'll look at maybe some places where Mm -hmm. I think other evidence might point us in other directions. But the argument that's actually in this article, I think, is extremely strong. Laura, can I take us back to New Testament 101 for a second and ask you, what is anti-imperialism? And who is seeing this in Paul?
1: Yeah. Anti-imperialism, anti-imperial rhetoric, anti-Roman rhetoric would be language, sentiments, or attitudes or behaviors that were poised to challenge the Roman Empire or threaten its uh, sovereignty or authority. And specifically in the Christian context, what we usually mean are Christian theological claims that are framed as a challenge to the Roman Empire, right? That, you know, the idea that Jesus is king, Caesar is not. Jesus is lord, Caesar is not. Uh, You know, Roman heroes have been framed as being born of a virgin. You know, Jesus is the real hero who's born of a virgin. The sort of like antagonistic claim against the Roman Empire that things that Rome claims about itself are actually properly claimed by Jesus and that this idea is subversive.
0: And who sees this in Paul?
1: So there's a few kind of flavors of anti-imperial scholarship of the New Testament. This has been uh, a huge theme in Warren Carter's scholarship on Matthew, for instance, right? The idea that Matthew is written to resist the imperial structure of Rome. And there's a lot of different um, anti-imperial theology, right? There's more than one way to do this. The very specific thing I was taking on was the argument um, that Primarily is associated with NT Wright. Also, to some extent, Dieter Georgi has participated in this. And a little bit of Richard Horsley, not to the same extent though, but mostly anti right is NT Wright is the one this is associated with. Is this very specific argument that Paul's statements in his letters are more anti-imperial than they might appear at first.
0: So a super quotable version of anti-imperial readings in the New Testament might be uh, N.T. Wright saying, Jesus is Lord, so Caesar is not, right? This framing of Christian theological affirmations as implicitly or explicitly juxtaposed with the empire. I'm curious, I haven't asked you this before recording, but what would you say is the most genuinely anti-imperial text in the New Testament?
1: the softball answer is revelation, right? Like, that's the obvious one. That revelation is, seems to be emerging from a context of increased pressure to participate in the imperial cult, for instance, so there's a lot more motivation to be anti-Roman. You know, the thing about you know, saying that like if Paul says that Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not, then of course that introduces the question of well, why does Paul not say that? To which then the answer is because you can't say that because then you'll get executed, right? That then you'll be uh then you will be vulnerable to persecution. And what's very interesting is that you know of course this is by a guy who's been exiled to Patmos, so you know to some extent he has already been caught, you might say. But Revelation is not subtle. It's not subtle at all. It's very openly anti-imperial, and the idea that this language is being coded is very unlikely. And if it, if it is coded, the code is deliberately easy to break, which is very commonly the style of apocalyptic writing. The use of symbolism is to create this atmosphere of esotericism, not to, like, sneak something past people.
0: If you were looking for a strong argument in favor of that reading of Revelation, I would... Uh, recommend you check out Stephen J. Friesen's Imperial Cults and the Apocalypse of John. Laura's argument begins by pointing out that lots of New Testament scholars use analogies to other dictatorial or uh, coercive, powerful, censoring state structures, and argues that these are anachronistic comparisons.
1: So the example that started this off is the one that's in N.T. Wright's book, Paul in Fresh Perspective. So as an analogy, N.T. Wright draws on the example of the play Harui Expelled from Office, which was written by the playwright Wu Han. Wu Han was a, a playwright who was writing during the Maoist regime in China, and he wrote a played during the Cultural Revolution that depicts this um, upstanding figure who was kicked out of his post because of his willingness to defy the emperor, right? And Wuhan himself eventually faced... Criticism, b- because he wrote this play that was clearly intended to code for his experience of being alongside Mao and his willingness to criticize Mao, um, and his and his disapproval of what Mao was doing, and he eventually faced censure th- for this, right? And this is done uh, in a sort of coded, underhanded way to uh, escape the the dangers of being seen as criticizing the cultural Cultural Revolution, right? Okay. Oh, yeah.
0: In what ways is Communist China? a bad analogy for yeah. Paul's situation in the Roman Empire.
1: The short answer is it's it's not a good analogy at all. The cultural revolution was the project of a massive bureaucracy and was in fact um conceived of as a way to deal with the fact that China had this huge bureaucracy, right? This idea that um, the revolution is constantly ongoing and you need to police, p- police the revolution itself for anti-revolutionary thought thought, so that you would never end up with this, like, staid state class that has rejected the, the revolutionary ideas of, of Marxism, right? At the time that... Wuhan was writing, the Chinese Communist Party's uh, bureaucracy consisted of 9.7 million people and peaked eventually at 11.6 million people. This is a huge modern state apparatus, right, that has, like, access to written communication and, um, you know, again, is policing itself a bureaucracy so, so like, communications are documented and, and, are, and, are, and are available to people who are trying to police it. And, you know, when you think about a bureaucracy of 11.6 million people who are trying to police the attitudes of, you know, it, it was, I don't think China was at a billion people yet at this time, but the way in which a state can control for the publication and releasing of material that is contrary to its interests becomes a lot more plausible right there is nothing like this in the roman empire th- th- that is what this bureaucracy did right like this is a huge part of what they did was pr- was uh, control for the cultural revolution and-, and there's just nothing like this in rome there's no roman state police that deals with anti-roman sentiments this is not their job that's just not what's happening
0: So Laura's argument is over and over going to be pointing out just the absence of evidence for the phenomenon N.T. Wright is imagining, or the inappropriateness of some proof texts that these scholars have cited. In the next section, you discuss controlled speech in Rome. Um, What kinds of speech do we actually see some evidence that Rome was interested in policing?
1: One thing that does show up is libel, right? Because like what I was trying to think about in this section was what, what examples of controlled speech do we have that are available to us, right? So a big one of these is libel, right? You do have situations in which people are held responsible for saying slanderous things that are argued to be untrue. Specifically, you have this in cases of public, generalized speech, right? You know, not just people saying this in in private, but, you know, you have this in in situations of, like, playwrights, right? So this this seems analogous to the kind of situation of, like, Paul's epistles, right? Like, something that is written that is meant to be broadcast to a larger community, right? So in these situations, is it possible that Paul would need to be careful that he wasn't libeling somebody, that he would not be sued for libel or taken to court for libel for saying something negative? about somebody that they would object to.
0: There is an important clarification to make here. Who is bringing the case for libel to court? Is it Roman soldiers who are going through people's mail looking for an instance of libel?
1: No, exactly. No, you. If you are personally libeled or you hear a libel case, then you bring it to the local court to hold that person accountable for libel, right? So unless Paul is saying something defamatory about somebody who can access the letter, this isn't really an issue, right? I couldn't find any examples in the literature of a soldier bringing a libel suit against a playwright because the playwright said something mean about soldiers, right? I can't find any examples of that. What you can find is senators at a play and the actor is saying something ne- negative about that senator, and then the senator takes them to court for libel, right? That does happen, but that's also not quite the same thing as, you know, this is sort of like more general question of speaking out negatively against the Empire, right? And it just, it doesn't seem that Paul is interested or that he would like to, but he doesn't actually say something negative about provincial leaders in the cities that he's writing to, right? It doesn't like, there's not really a good indication that that's on Paul's mind
0: then there's a second kind of controlled speech a second kind of speech that we have evidence of the state acting with respect to and that's maestas um laura mm-hmm. what's maestas
1: yeah so maestas this is basically like what we might just call treason it is threatening the dignity of the empire the imperial family person his seal his authority something like that right this can be a violent act you know like raising a revolution against him it can mean you know violent acts against the state or provincial leaders which are their for threat affect the emperor it can also include words or subversive words against the emperor right like saying that implies threat to the emperor or it can be something like a like a like a threatening gesture right so defacing the emperor's seal would be maestas any action that seems to like threaten the family right
0: but laura what kinds of people are prosecuted for maestas
1: one thing that comes up a lot when you're reading articles about this is that scholars will bring up a long list of offenses that can be prosecuted as maiestas, right? They're usually under Tiberius, who was kind of infamous for being paranoid, and include things like undressing in front of a statue of the emperor or like such such behavior as that. With the the assumption being, you know, if this could get you in trouble for treason, just think of how careful everyone had to be. Here's the thing. You can list the acts that are prosecuted for Maestas, but the thing that is not brought up in these situations is who got prosecuted for Maestas. And those are two very different questions. Usually when you have these stories of emperors being paranoid and prosecuting trivial offenses as offenses against their person, the reason why they're doing it is because the offender is a powerful person who the emperor sees as a rival for his authority. So it tends to be senators, it tends to be provincial leaders or governors it tends to be people with a significant amount of authority it doesn't tend to be average workaday citizens in rome you know it's it's only been in the 20th century that we've even really had the technology necessary to police everyday people for their thoughts about the government
0: and that'll be our next point we'll come back to that
1: but even in these settings it matters a lot more what a dictator's second-in-line thinks of him than what a dictator's janitor thinks of him, right? Unless the janitor can actually, like, get in the same room and stab him, right? But generally speaking, the person who is most able to threaten an autocrat are the people around the autocrat who have some level of power themselves, which is why this community of people is so relentlessly surveyed and and watched in the Roman Empire for signs of disloyalty, because they actually can do something about it, and a lot of emperors in Rome get overthrown this very way from people within their circle who are sick of them being in charge and then kill them and then take their position, right? This doesn't translate to a culture where the average citizen must be very careful to never signal Treasonous thoughts against the emperor, because otherwise the emperor will seek him out and kill him. What is he gonna do? Like the local baker can hate the emperor very, very much, but the reality is his ability to do something about the emperor is pretty limited. We don't see these people prosecuted for treason that often, except in context in in context of rioting or violent revolution. Right? You do see that.
0: Christoph Heilig brings up the example of Christ as Lord as an example of Maestas. Because one kind of speech you do see non-elites being prosecuted for sometimes are holding someone up as a rival to the emperor's power. So you've got a critique of this. But I think the more obvious thing is like, if that is Paul's anti-imperial rhetoric, then it's not hidden. Like, if that's the thing that's going to get Paul in trouble, we may not agree on this. I do think there is actually evidence from the second century that some Christians viewed this as a sort of anti-imperial claim. Whatever the case is on that, it's not a hidden transcript. It's not a. It, this is something that shows up in the first first words of every letter.
1: We can talk about what claims the Christians made that were seen as subversive. We know there was something about the Christian religion from early on that. Romans did find subversive, right? There's a reason why Paul is getting chased out of town all the time, right? The question is, we need to be careful to not this leap to this place of Paul must be criticizing the emperor more than he is. It's just this sort of like under the surface criticism, right?
0: And I think Paul often gets chased out of town for causing scrums in the streets. Yes, Um, But that's neither here nor there. One of the things I love about this article is Laura has several very clever and insightful turns of phrase. And I want to read one in connection with this point here. Even in our own day, says Laura, Calvinist Christians are quite capable of discussing the doctrine of election without hearing a quiet critique of how Americans choose a president. So the point here is she is sort of problematizing the the claim itself, that curios. It is simply not the case that you have to read the use of curios applied to another human being, or in this case, Jesus, that you have to read that as an anti-imperial claim. It is equally plausible that readers are hearing echoes of Isaiah, of the Hebrew Bible, um, of the use of kurios for the name of God, or just hearing the word boss used, which is what kurios often functions
1: you can appropriate the language of your culture to new religious context without setting it up as antagonistic, right? You need additional evidence, I think, that, that the phrasing is meant to be antagonistic to Roman culture other than the word itself. You need more evidence. I'm not saying it's not possible for it to be antagonistic and we do see context where it seems like it definitely is, right, like Revelation is a really good example. You just need more evidence that that is the goal that we have in this text, right? Like the, the, the word itself does not get you there.
0: In the next section, Laura argues that there just simply isn't the evidence for a police state that would be required to intercept or get a hold of uh, Paul's letters. Um, How is a Roman official going to be reading these texts? And she starts her argument with the really obvious thing. Paul's letters are being carried by his emissaries, by his friends, uh, people like Timothy, people like Phoebe, the letter carrier of Romans. These are people that we have reason to think are Paul's own allies. Laura is not denying that there is any evidence of anyone ever stealing a letter. Uh, In fact, there's a very famous example from the Catiline Conspiracy.
1: So Cicero says in some of his letters that he is concerned about saying more or less his letter be picked up, right? Um, And then the Catiline Conspiracy has this very famous example of a letter that is written for the purpose of treasonous sense that is intercepted on the road, right? Once again, these are letters by and from and to extremely famous people, right? That these are letters who are... from people who are very high up in the Roman order. And there's actually a reason why somebody might want to get their hands on their mail if they suspect them of something. And there's also reasons why. You know, if Cicero's mail is being carried by a slave, there's tremendous danger in a slave contradicting their enslaver in any capacity. You you can absolutely face the death penalty for it. The, The letter carrier in these situations doesn't really believe in Cicero's cause, right? You know, this is not a person who... You know, is, is invested in Cicero's mail getting where it needs to go outside of the antagonistic fear relationship of this enslaver enslaved, which is not true. Sure what's going on in Paul's letters, right? Paul's letters are being carried by other Christians to other Christians. Everybody involved in this process is somebody who wants the letter to get where they need it to go because they want this movement to succeed. Um, and then on the road, no one's looking for these people, right? These are all working class individuals. They're not hot commodities as far as mail stealing goes.
0: In a pithy summary of that point, Laura says, In our own era, trash theft occurs, but most of us do not seek to prevent it in the way that Angelina Jolie or Selena Meyer might. Famous people, people who are at the center of elite networks of wealthy and powerful individuals, they actually do have reason, especially when they're communicating things that are obviously seditious, they do have reason to worry about who's going to get a hold of their mail there doesn't seem to be anything analogous for paul
1: and then this leads us to the question of people in paul's churches who might be tempted to take a snippet of what they've heard as anti-imperial and take it to the authorities right in this case this would be someone who's acting as a delator a delator is a private prosecutor in the Roman world. There is no state prosecutor in our government system. The state, pro- the state brings cases, right? We have state prosecutors. It's not what happens in Rome. If you are personally wronged, you can bring a case in Rome, or if you are a delator, you are a private citizen who has taken on the work of bringing cases, then you can do this as well, right? So what incentive is there to be a delator? Well, if you successfully bring a case against somebody, you have a right to their stuff is a reward, right? So being a delator is kind of seen by the upper class as sort of a low-down, dirty, underhanded way to get. To the top and to socially climb, that if you bring enough cases against well off people and you take their money and their stuff, eventually you might be able to make a name for yourself and make a fortune for yourself, right? Now, what is the advantage of being a Delator against Paul? There kind of isn't one. Paul is just a working class guy who doesn't really seem to have a lot of money, and is and is a hand worker. Right? He works in leather. It's not really a good indication that this would be a payday if you're if you're a delator. So the chance to take down Paul is not particularly appealing, as near as I can tell, for the average Roman citizen who's looking for a payday. Right. Now you might say Paul had a lot of enemies. Paul had a lot of people who um around him who didn't like him and who would want to take him down. Yeah, these people are all mostly Christians, right? They're mostly other Christians who don't agree with what Paul is teaching, and it's not really clear that those people, you know, what is the situation in which you would be able to accuse Paul of being part of a strange cultic outfit that is bringing the superstitions of the East and threatening the Empire by saying that there is another king who is God, who is Jesus, who is Caesar? What? Torah following Christian is going to be able to bring that case against Paul and not get fingered for the exact same thing. Because it, 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 deltors do get executed. This does happen. That, you know, it's a dangerous game. So to me, it doesn't seem very likely that Christian sectarians would want to bring in the Roman court to solve this dispute over the claim that their very doctrine was a threat to the safety of the emperor. This does not seem like a good path forward to me.
0: Yep, I think it's a powerful argument. I'm also going to push back on it. I think this is the scenario that's envisioned in, like, the Acts of Paul and Thecla. And I think that is corresponding to even things we see echoes of in Acts. And that is Christians who are using local magistrates almost always to try to get a rival teacher in trouble. So I do think there is some some evidence for this kind of thing happening. I don't think this by any means undermines your whole argument, but it does seem to me important to recognize that Christians doing infighting uh, did sometimes, or at least are imagined to have sometimes, tried to get people in trouble for things that may or may not have been true.
1: No point in this process have I been trying to make the claim the Christians in the Roman Empire got along mostly fine. That's clearly not true, right? Like even people who go in hardline for the myth of persecution idea popular by Candida Moss, which I think is accurate, the myth of persecution does not mean that Christians were not actually persecuted by the state. It does not mean that Christians were not actually tried tried for treason. That's not what it means. And I think that our challenge as historians is to think about why did that happen? And in light of that, what are we actually looking for when we look at Paul's letters? So I I think these are a few different conversations.
0: We started this conversation by talking about how Laura's argument here is really focused. And the the thrust of the argument, it seems to me, is there just isn't a good reason to think that Paul would have concealed his anti-imperial sentiments. And if we have any evidence of anti-imperialism, it's things like Paul calling Jesus Lord, which is not only... Polysimus, but shows up in the very beginning of his letters. Another great pithy quote from Laura I want to read that illustrates this is, is the concluding paragraph of her article. Here's a joke. Why don't you see elephants hiding in trees? Answer, because they are really good at it. For years in Pauline scholarship, this logic has also answered the question, why don't you see Paul criticizing the Roman Empire? Because he's really good at hiding it. What makes the elephant joke funny, or at least a little funny, is that assuming that Christians are present but well-concealed in trees is a cumbersome explanation that ignores the obvious truth. There are no elephants in trees.
1: There's a lot we could say about the Roman state. There's a lot we could say about Christian persecution. There's a lot we could say about uh, Christian rivalry between sects. And that's all worth talking about. But at the end of the day, the very specific question we're trying to answer is, does Paul say something coded and quietly against the Empire in his letters? If so, what is it? If so, what are the mechanisms by which we might find it? And I think that what a lot of this looks like to me is difficulty accepting that Paul's letters don't say more against the Roman Empire in the way that we'd like him to. It would be really satisfying for us to have him speak out against the Roman Empire. And I can't help but notice a lot of the scholarship actually starts to show up during the beginning of the Iraq War anti-Tony Blair, anti-George Bush instinct is where I suspect a lot of this stuff came from. And it's frustrating to see this guy who is, by all accounts, totally degraded and uh, downtrodden by his government and by his society, and just doesn't really have anything more fiery uh, or or controversial to say about it. And I think that this hunt for hidden criticism kind of comes from this place of thinking that there has to be something there. There has to be something against the empire in Paul's letters and I just don't think it's there.
0: There are other things in the scriptures that we can use as theological resources for talking about exploitative empires and critiques thereof. It seems to me that Paul's letters to his own churches being carried by his own people mostly on subjects of ecclesiastical controversy are a pretty poor place to go hunting for this. And the idea that he had to code it, that he had to hide it, that he would have said so much more if he could, strains my historical credulity. If you want something New Testament, try on Revelation for size.
1: I think another place to really look, if you're interested in the subject, is just liberation theology and the way they deal with the biblical text. You know, I think that's a way more interesting route for this kind of scholarship.
0: Well, thanks, Laura. This was a lot of fun discussing your article. I commend you. you all to go find it. It's on New Testament Studies. If you want a copy, I bet Laura would be willing to send you one. Absolutely. All right. Talk to you soon, Laura.
1: Talk to you soon, Ian.